Well, we are today starting Romans chapter 8, which, as I said last week, is a great chapter to start on Easter Sunday. Um, And the verses that we look at today are really, just simply put, are the gospel. And uh, so I'm... uh, I'm looking forward to Romans 8. It's a great chapter. Uh, I'm, I'm always one that's a little loath to compare passages of Scripture. Some people have their favorite passages and have their favorite chapters and, uh, and uh, some remark about Romans 8 that it's kind of the, the best of all the Scriptures. Uh, I wouldn't go that far uh, just because, I, like I say, I'm a little hesitant to compare one passage against another. But it certainly ranks up there as a, as a great chapter. Uh, there are a number of others, you know, Hebrews 11, Psalm 23, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. You know, there's a number of great chapters in Scripture, but Romans 8 is a, is, is a great chapter, and, uh, and it'll be a drink of fresh water after uh, working uh, through Romans chapter 7 as we have. And, seeing uh, our condition in Romans chapter 7. So, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, We will look today, Lord willing, at the first four verses. I'm going to not try to do too much today uh, in the first four verses of chapter 8. But before we do that, last week we looked at the end of Romans 7, verses 21 through 25. We kind of tried to wrap up our study of Romans chapter 7 last week. So, is there anything you remember from last week? What are the points you remember or anything that sticks out to you from last week? Okay. Right. Uh-huh. And, of course, we have uh, people with different views on that, which is okay. And, uh, of course, as you all know now, after we've spent several several, uh, Sundays in chapter 7, you know my position, that I think it's written from the perspective of an unbeliever. But uh, uh, there is the other side of it, that uh, those who see it as uh, speaking of a believer. uh, But uh, we talked about all that. We won't go through all that again. But what else? What is Paul's conclusion after he goes through this experience of trying to do what is right or wanting to do what is right and not being able to do it? What is his conclusion? Well, I wasn't in the class last week, but I, I know what it says there in verse 24. Uh-huh. The conclusion is he could not do it himself yeah. and needed a Savior. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And we tried to draw application from the passage, particularly last week. Uh, and, and I think that uh, Jim's point there is a point that applies whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. <laughs> you know, we just, and we'll see that more as we go through chapter 8, uh, that we cannot do this in the flesh. We cannot, of our own willpower, we cannot live righteously the way, uh, the, way the law requires us to live. And uh, as Jim said, we need a Savior. 
So that's what we'll get into in chapter 8. What else? Remember we talked uh, we talked about law again last week. What are some of the things we said about law as we looked at the subject last week? From those verses. We sort of ventured from the Mosaic law into other laws. Okay. 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 Great. Good. Uh, primarily through Romans chapter seven, with a couple exceptions, when Paul uses the phrase "law" or the "law," up until the end of the chapter, he's referring to what we call the Mosaic law or the Torah or the Pentateuch. Okay, the the commandments and the laws that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai, and that's primarily what he's referring to as you go through chapter seven. But when you get to the end there, you'll notice, and this will come out again, and the reason I want to cover this is because it will come out again today in the verses that we look at today. But you'll notice uh, that he says in verse uh, 22, he says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. There again, he's referring to the Mosaic law. But then he says, But I see then a different law. In the Greek, it's the word heteros, another law. There is another law at work. And this other law that is at work, uh, he says in 22, uh, uh, this other principle that is at work uh, is waging war against the law of his mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Back in verse 21, uh, I got ahead of myself a little bit. Back in 21, he says, I find then the principle, that's the same word, the same Greek word that's translated law in 23. Uh, but it's, he says, I find then the principle or the law that evil is present in me, the one who does good, one who wants to do good. So uh, the point there is that Paul begins to use the word law then in a broader sense. So then you have to kind of figure out from the context, you have to figure out what does he mean when, he, when he's using the word law. And, and, I, and I do want to go back and just kind of cover this briefly because it's relevant to the verses that we're going to look at today in chapter 8. But you'll notice in 21 he says he's discovered a principle or a law. And the principle or the law that's operating here and 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 when you think of law in this sense, you kind of think like when we use the term the law of gravity or the law of nature. It's kind of just these kind of general rules or, or principles or authority by which things operate. Okay, And he's found this principle at work in him. And the principle that he's found, this thing that he's found at work in him is that there is, in addition to uh, the law of God, which he agrees with at times, he finds what? Verse 23. I think it's... Uh, okay, he finds then... Uh, yeah, that's his explanation of it. Uh, he finds then uh, a different law or another law. Okay? And this other law, uh, 
So the principle is that he has now these two laws. He has the law of God in his mind. He goes, okay, yeah, I agree, it's good. But he's got this other law that's at work in his members. And he, what does he call it? What does he call this other law? The law of sin. Okay? So he has this other law, the law of sin. And what he means by that is that sin is in him. It's just in his being. It's in his flesh. A sin is there and it is this dominating, controlling force in his life. And, 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 and it's a different law than the law of God. And then he makes another... He talks about what might be another law there. He says... Uh, I see then a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. So then he talks about the law of his mind. And I'm going to put that over here. There's probably a couple different ways you could look at it. The law of his mind could just be, be what he thinks in his mind is right or it could be a reference to the law of God. It could be either one of those. But it's what his mind wants to do. His mind says... Yes, I want to do this. This is what is right. This is what I ought to do. And so this is what I want to do. That's his law of his mind. But he finds this law of sin, this other law, is at work in his members and it makes him sin. So he just finds himself sinning in spite of the fact that he doesn't want to. And this is the principle or the law that he has discovered that is at work in him. Okay, that's all stuff we talked about last week and I don't want to belabor that because we have... Uh, a great deal to cover today. But then he so he comes to this conclusion that he is this wretched man or this miserable man. He says, I am miserable because I want to do what's good. I know what's good. I, I give lip service to what's good, but I find myself inevitably doing what's wrong. Okay. And so I am this miserable man and he cries out and he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Okay. And that's where we are at the end of chapter 7. Okay. And then we move into chapter 8. Now we remember that chapter 7 is a discussion about the person who is trying to live righteously by adhering to the law of God. It's somebody who views himself as being under the law of God and trying to live righteously by God's law. And what he finds is he can't do it because he has something in him, something he describes it as evil in him that's at work in him that keeps him from being able to live righteously. He describes himself as being a slave to that, as being in bondage to it. So sin is just this powerful force at work in him. That's a really bleak picture. When we get to chapter 8, everything changes. We get to chapter 8, verse 1, and immediately everything changes. And instead of looking, as we have been all the way through chapter 7, of what it's like to live under the law, we discover what it's like to live life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and all of chapter 8 is talking about what it's like to be a believer. What it's like to be a Christian. What it's like to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as one person said, it starts out at the beginning with no condemnation and comes to the end with no separation. It's a fantastic chapter. It's a glorious chapter. And it's got a lot of really rich stuff in it. And we're going to work our way through it slowly so as to try and get 
a lot of meat out of it. But in verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. Okay? Well, you know, we, we have this kind of rule in interpreting the Bible uh, that we've often talked about that whenever you see a therefore, you do what? You see what it's there for, right? You're trying to figure out, okay. Therefore is a signal that, that what he is about to say connects in some logical way to something that has gone before it. So, whenever you see the word therefore, when you're trying to figure out what Scripture says, whenever you see the word therefore, as we do at the beginning of chapter 8, you want to ask yourself, what is it that he is linking this statement to that he is about to make? What has he already said that he's linking it to? And oftentimes, usually, probably, I would say, when he uses the word therefore, with Paul or any other writer of Scripture, when they use the word therefore, it's referring to something that's immediately preceded it. Okay? He said something right before it, and then he's going on, he's going to say something that flows out of that, or results from that, or is a consequence from that. Okay? But commentators are generally in agreement here that in this particular case, when Paul uses the word therefore, he is not referring to what has immediately preceded it. But he's actually referring back to things he said earlier in Romans. Okay? So, uh, some commentators suggest that, that the word therefore in verse 8, and what he's about to say, or chapter 8, what he's about to say here about there is therefore now no condemnation is not really in response to what he has said immediately prior, but is at least goes back to chapter 7, verse 6, where he says, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. And one of the reasons they point to chapter 7, verse 6 as what the therefore is referring to is because as you've already seen what we've seen in just the four verses we've already read, and as we go on and read more verses, we're going to see Paul using in over the next uh, uh, 15 verses or so, he's going to use the word spirit in reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, at least a dozen times or more. He just he just you know just keeps coming up and up and up. So so the idea of chapter eight is contrasting life in the spirit with life in the flesh. So so some commentators suggest that the therefore is a reference is tying back to what he said back in verse six of chapter seven before he went into this discussion of the law and how the law interplays with sin and that sort of thing in our lives. I think more commentators, at least the ones I read, tend to view the therefore really as going even further back. That it really goes back to 
kind of Paul's whole presentation, beginning clear back in chapter 1, but particularly in chapter uh, 3 through chapter 5. And, and what we pick up right away in chapter 8, verse 1, is this idea of no condemnation. Okay? If you go back in chapter, three, uh, chapter 5, uh, you'll notice um, that this idea of no condemnation is, is the idea that he's dealing with in chapter 5. Uh, well, let me do it this way. Before we get to chapter 5, go back to chapter 3. In chapter 3, uh, he's been dealing with man's predicament, how man is trapped in sin, etc., etc., and that the answer to that dilemma of us being sinners and being under uh, God's wrath is, of course, salvation by faith. And he begins to present that argument in verse th- chapter 3. And down in verse 20, he says, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through law comes the knowledge of sin. And so he's making this argument that he's going to pick up again in chapter 8 that the law doesn't do it. The law doesn't cut it. Okay? But it's salvation by faith and justification by faith. So he says in verse 21 of chapter 3, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So this, so Paul is developing as he's presenting his gospel to the Romans. And he wants the Romans to understand the gospel that he preaches. Because when he gets to Rome, he's going to, he wants to have their support and he's wanting to go from Rome and go on uh, further to the west and go out to Spain and he wants Rome's support in, with him as he does this further ministry. And so he wants them to understand the gospel that he preaches and the gospel that he preaches is a gospel that man is a sinner and he's in need of a Savior. He's in need of deliverance. He cannot do himself. He cannot do it by the law. But the justification comes by faith. And so then he argues in chapter 4, he gives the example of Abraham and he laboriously works through this issue that salvation by faith has been the way it always worked. This is not a new thing. This is not a New Testament concept. This goes all the way back into the Old Testament. He uses Abraham as an example. And then he comes to chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And jumping down to verse 6, he says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The idea is our helpless condition and we needed a Savior, which we've just been talking about already. And then we get down to verse 18. He says, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. There's that word condemnation again that we encounter when we get to chapter 8. He says there, uh, he says there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to all men. And what we encounter when we get to chapter 8, verse 1, and those verses that follow, is this contrast again between condemnation and justification. And he doesn't use the word justification there in those first verses of chapter 8, but that's clearly what he's talking about. He's talking about us being made right before God. Okay. So this contrast of condemnation and justification that he talks about here in verse 18 of chapter 5 is the theme he's picking up again in chapter 8, verse 1. Okay. 
And then he says uh, in verse 21, he says, well, uh, let's look at verse 20 of chapter 5. He says, the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the theme he's picking up in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So, when, in, so you can go back to chapter 8 now. When he says in chapter 8, verse 1, the very first word, therefore, or the first word in your English translations, when he says, therefore, he's not, he, he is not only giving us the answer to the predicament that we faced at the end of chapter 7. Certainly he's giving that. Whether you see that as an unbeliever or a believer, it's not that he's just... It's not he's just answering that dilemma, but rather he's going back and he's picking up his whole theme of the gospel. Okay, this is the gospel. And in chapter 6 and chapter 7, he's kind of been on a parallel track with his main theme of the gospel. He's been dealing with this whole question of the law. And he's talking about how... We, how about we're dead to sin and we're dead to the law and we're, you know, we were joined to law, but we're not... You know, that's all important stuff that relates to the gospel. But his main theme that he's, that he's hammering on is what is the gospel throughout these first uh, eight chapters of Romans? What is the gospel? And so that's what he's coming back to here at the beginning of chapter 8 when he says, Therefore... Because of all of this that we've said, because of what Christ has done, because even though we were once all under condemnation, as he said in 5.18, that condemnation no longer exists for the believer, as we'll see. So the therefore in chapter 8, I think, refers back to the totality of the gospel that he's been presenting. And his grand conclusion is, folks, there is now no condemnation. Given all this we've said, understanding our predicament, but now knowing what God has done in Christ, there's no condemnation. So it's not just that there's no condemnation for me in the sins that I happen to fall into as a believer, although that is certainly true, John tells us, reminds us in 1 John, he says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So even as a believer, if I sin, I have an advocate and there is no condemnation. It's not just that that he's talking. It's certainly that that he's talking about, but he's talking about the totality of my condition both before and after I was saved. All my sin, my sin before I was saved and my sin after my saved and when I look at all of that and I look at how horrible and how horrific and terrible all that rebellion against God is that I have committed in my life and continue even as a believer at times to do, for all of that there is no condemnation for those, he says, who are in Christ Jesus. Now he uses that term there, in Christ Jesus, and that's a really neat term because it's really Paul's term for a Christian. We do see in the New Testament that the term Christian was beginning to be used. 
uh, as Christians grew in number and they became influential and people began to rub shoulders with them. And at first it was kind of a derogatory term uh, used by outsiders. But eventually we kind of thought that's a good term. That's a good name for ourselves. We'll call ourselves Christians. If that's what they're going to call us, that's what we'll call ourselves because we're Christ ones. Okay, so we'll call ourselves Christians. But the problem is that over the centuries and millennia since that term first began to be used, it's kind of gotten watered down a little, hasn't it? Okay, And so, so now it's not always a good thing to be identified as a Christian because in many people's minds, they really don't know what that means. Uh, several years ago when my wife and I went to uh, Russia to visit our son and he was working and uh, studying in a Muslim area of Russia and he said well in you know in sharing your testimony and talking he said don't don't say you're a Christian because that has certain connotations to the Muslims here in southern Russia he says we say we're disciples of Christ or we're disciples of Jesus he says we don't say we're Christians he's trying to break through that that kind of, you know, cliched idea of what a Christian is. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. And that's another, yeah. Well, I've got a term for you. I've got a term for you. I don't have any problem with using the term Christian. I'm fine with that. But I've got a good term for you. And that is the term Paul uses here in Christ. Because that really describes it, doesn't it? That really describes what a person is who has encountered the living Christ and had their sins taken away. There's somebody who is in Christ. There's a lot of people who walk around and outwardly they do the Christian outward things. They go to church. They mow their lawn on Saturdays. You know, they do the outwardly Christian things, right? Okay. Uh, they don't throw stones at their neighbor's dog when he barks at night. You know, they outwardly they act sort of Christian, but they have never really been in Christ. They've never really surrendered their life and had their sins forgiven and had the indwelling power of the Spirit of God come into them. And that's what Paul is describing. And so this promise that there is no condemnation is not just thrown out there willy-nilly for just anybody to claim. But it's a promise that's given to those who are in Christ. And Paul in another place, he he warns us, he warns us, he admonishes the believers to who he's writing, and he says, Make sure you examine yourselves to see that you are what? In Christ. Yeah. It's very easy for us to go to church. It's very well, for some of us, it's very easy for us to go to church to occasionally write a check and put it in the offering plate. To occasionally take a moment in our day to pray. But those are not the things that make us Christians in the true sense of the word. They're not the things that place us in Christ. Well, this is really doing work. I can see it now. What religion are you? In Christ. <laughs> <laughs> work on it. That'll make them ask. 
<laughs> you know, I was thinking about that very question. I said, somebody said, you know, that question came up in this, my discussion with somebody, and I just said to them, instead of saying I'm a Christian, I just said, I'm in Christ. That set them back, wouldn't it? And what they, what they would do is they go, well, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, you know, there may be any number of them. They may think it's cool, or that you know, but they may not understand. They may think, well, you're a Christian, and I'm a Christian too. You know, I'm a Mormon, and I'm a Christian. You know, see, so, so you know, maybe, maybe we'd be better off if instead of saying I'm a Christian, we say, well, I'm an in Christ one. And they go, huh? Would you explain that, please? And then we have an opportunity to do what Peter says and give a hope for the reason that lies within us, you know. So it's just a thought, but but I like Paul's term there, and and he says concerning those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. But then he goes on. The reason there's no condemnation, he says, is because. The law of the Spirit, verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. Okay, here we go, Paul. Another law. Okay, we've got all these laws we talked about and now we have another one and it's what? The law of the Spirit. Okay, again, he's using the word law in this broader sense. Of this, of this power or authority that is at work. And so we have the law of God, which is a reference to the Mosaic law. There's that power and authority. It has certain authority, etc. at work. And, and the law of Moses says, you, you know, you, you, you don't have any other gods before me. You don't make any graven images, you know, that sort of thing. You, you keep the Sabbath day, you know, keep it holy. Uh, uh, you don't you don't murder, you don't kill, you don't covet, you don't take your mother, your your mother's wife, your your brother's wife, you you know all those things you don't do, you know, and certain things you do do. Okay, honor your you know those that's that's the mosaic law, and it has an authority, and the authority is this: if you don't do it, what happens? Well, that's your state. You die. Yeah, you die. The wages of sin is death. And the law very explicitly said, okay, here are all these things. Just taking Ten Commandments. There's more to it than that, but just taking Ten Commandments. There are the Ten Commandments, and if you don't do them perfectly, you die. Using death in the sense that the Scripture uses the term death. It implies, of course, physical death, but the real meaning of the word death is that idea of separation and alienation and the result of us not keeping the law of God is that we are separated from, alienated from God, which results ultimately in physical death. But even before we die physically, we experience all this kind of alienation that we experience in life. Alienation from God, alienation from our spouses and our children and our parents and our neighbors and our employers and our employees, all this conflict that goes on in the world is a result of us not obeying the law of God. The wages of sin and death. Well, that's the one law, the law of God, but then we have this other law, this other force or power or authority that's work in us, and it's sin. And it's actually in us. It's somehow 
poisoned our bodies, if you will, infected us so that even when I hear God's law and God's law says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, the law of sin is at work in me. And even though I go, yeah, that's not a very good thing to do, I do it. That's the law of sin. That's the power and authority of sin that is working in and through me. But now, I'm introduced to another law. And that's the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So now I find out that for those who are in Christ, there's another law at work in them. And this is the law of the Spirit. This is the law of or the power or the authority that is at work in me because God's Spirit is in me. Now, I've not become God. Okay, remember our little... Somebody took all my uh, markers. Let me dig one out here. Uh, remember our little diagram a couple weeks ago where we had, this is me, okay, and in me, there's the I or the ego, and uh, and that's the that's the immaterial part of me, my soul, my spirit, my mind, that that part that's immaterial. And then there's my flesh or my body, and the scripture teaches us that this has been contaminated by sin, and and this law of sin that's in me rules my whole person, dominates my whole person. Okay, so that I am. Completely, all of me is a sinner and accountable to God. Remember that diagram? Okay, now now what's happened is if I'm in Christ, this hasn't changed. I, I'm still what I was. I still, I'm still the, both the immaterial and the material aspects of me. That's still there. But something new has happened. I have received indwelling in me another person. God. God. Okay. Now, just keep that in mind, folks. We, you know, we say the Holy Spirit, but we kind of, you know, we really shouldn't do this. But I think sometimes we kind of think that's kind of just a, that's kind of a lesser, not lesser. It's God, folks. It's the Creator of heaven and earth. It's the one who was brooding over the face of the earth before he put everything in order. It is the one who it is the one who inhabited the tabernacle in the wilderness. It's the one who parted the Red Seas. The Red Sea. <laughs> the one who stopped the River Jordan. The one who said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The one who said I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That is the one who is now inside of the person who is in Christ. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and this. Uh, to put it in a... There's that other marker right there. I already have <laughs> This to, to use the term of the... Of the uh, of the friend of my daughter's who came to Christ last year, this changes everything. 
does, doesn't it? And that's what Paul's point is. Paul's point is this, this Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit or this power and authority of the Spirit now indwelling me and working in me has set me free from the law of sin and death. I've been set free. That's his whole point back in Romans 6. Remember? I don't have to do this stuff anymore. Back in Romans 7, that dilemma was, <laughs> you know, how do I get free of this? You know, well, I am free. I have been set free by Christ. And so I would suggest to you, if you view Romans 7 as a believer, at least grant me this much. It's a believer who is not living in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not the Spirit-filled life. It's the life of a defeated believer. If it's a believer at all, which of course I don't believe it is. But it's a defeated believer. Because the true believer, a person who is in Christ, has God's Spirit in them and their bondage and slavery to the law of sin within them has been broken. That's what he says in verse 2. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Who has it set free? According to that verse. Okay. Now, unfortunately, your version is in the English. There you go. Okay. In the Greek, it says you. Okay. <laughs> well, in Oklahoma, we have a way to tell the difference, right? We have a way to tell the difference between the singular and the plural, right? There's you and then there's y'all, right? Okay. Okay, so we're smart like the Greeks. You go up north, they're not as smart as, as we are down south. We know enough to distinguish between the singular and the plural. Well, this is not plural here. This is singular, and it's really weird. Because here's Paul's writing to the whole Roman church, to all these believers in Rome. And he says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you singular, free, from the law of sin and death. So I don't know anything else to do with that word except put your name in there. Because it's written to you if you are in Christ and only if you are in Christ. It's written to you personally. Singularly. God's Spirit in you has set you, an individual, free from the law of sin and death. Well, how does that happen? He says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. I love the way this verse goes. What the law could not do, God did. Isn't that cool? <laughs> what the law could not do, God did. Folks, that's what we're celebrating this weekend. That's what Easter's all about. That's what Good Friday and Easter Sunday is all about, is that what the law could not do, 
God did in sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. You know, the big problem that people had when they lived in Jesus' day and they walked the streets of Palestine and they encountered Jesus, you know why it was so hard for them to believe that Jesus was who He claimed to be? He was born among them. Folks, He looked like a sinner. He, was, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. I mean, if you were walking down the road and there were two people walking towards you and you didn't know them, and one was Jesus and one was Peter, what would you conclude about both of them if you didn't know them? <laughs> well, what would you think? They are? They're just like me and they are sinners. He came. Pardon? They're dressed funny. Well, you would be dressed differently if you were there. Okay. Uh, so, he looked like a sinner, folks, because he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. But he says the likeness because it was not sinful flesh. Because he was without sin. And so he could be an offering that would satisfy the dilemma for those of us who do indwell sinful flesh. So he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin or as an offering for sin. So Christ comes as an offering for sin in order, he says, that he might do what? Before that, the end of the previous verse. Condemn sin in the flesh. See, what did we say the law said had to happen when you sin? You got to die. Okay? That's the requirement of the law. And so we have sin joined to us, wedded to us. It's part of us. Pardon? At the DNA level, yeah. It's there. And we are under condemnation. But God did what the law could not do. It set us free from the law of sin and death. It broke our bondage to God broke our bondage to the law of sin and death. The law could not do that. Why could the law not do it? Because the law is out there. It's just a bunch of words. It is, as one writer said, a bunch of requirements and threats. And I need more than requirements and threats. I need some power. And the law does not imbue me with power to be free from the law of sin and death. The law of God could not do that. It wasn't intended to do that. It was never given that power. It was only given in order that I might see I need a Savior. And so the law could not... Pardon? That's the reason the law was given. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And so God did what the law could not do. He sent His Son, and His Son put to death the sin in me. 
He who in his flesh was sinless suffered the penalty of death for the sin in my flesh in order that I might be free from the bondage to the law of sin and death. So, he says then at the end in verse 4, so that the requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You'll notice the word requirement there is singular. It's not plural. I don't believe that here that Paul is saying, although that we could say this from other places in Scripture, I don't think it's what he's saying here. I don't think what Paul is saying here is that we somehow have managed now to keep the law through what God has done. Now, we could argue that, like I say, from other places in Scriptures, when we understand that he says that, that he who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God has been attributed to me, and so, of course, in that sense, I have kept the law. But I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. He uses the word requirement in the singular here. And what is the singular requirement of the law that he's been talking about? Well, but if you don't keep the law, what's the requirement? Death. Yeah. This is what God has done in Christ, folks. This is what we're celebrating today. Is that the requirement of death that the law makes upon me because I have not kept it has been satisfied in Christ. Has been met in Christ. The requirement of the law has been met in those of us who do not walk according to the flesh. We don't walk this way, but we walk according to the Spirit. Now, Commentators kind of debate this a little bit, exactly what he means here, but the best way I can understand it is this. When he says, for those who walk according to the Spirit, that's not a conditional statement. That's a descriptive statement. What I mean by that is he's not saying, well, if you walk by the Spirit, you'll fulfill the law. Or the requirement of the law is met. That's... I don't believe what he's saying here. What he's saying here is simply that everybody who's in Christ, everybody who lives in Christ, in the, according to the Spirit, all of those people are the ones for whom the requirement of the law has been met. You see, because... And the reason I think this is important is because it's, it's easy to read this and think, well, okay, it's only when I'm walking in the Spirit that the requirement of the law is met. But that's not really what Paul's addressing here. The fact is, he says, all those who are in Christ, remember verse 2, verses 1 and 2, all those who are in Christ have the spirit of the, the have the law of the spirit of the life in Christ in them. And make that clear as we go further on in chapter eight. We'll see very clearly. If you're a believer, you live according to the Spirit. Now you don't always 
live it out actually, practically. Sometimes you you you, you don't do what you ought to do, and and et cetera, et cetera. But what we want to understand here from this passage is the person, when a person's in Christ, that's not a one-time experience in their life. That is the ongoing permanent condition. It may have started at one point, but it's an ongoing thing. Paul doesn't say, for all those who one time were in Christ, or for all those who walked the aisle, or all those who prayed the sinner's prayer. He doesn't say that. He says, all those who are in Christ. So either I am in Christ or I'm not in Christ. And if I'm in Christ, I have the Spirit. And if I have the Spirit, ultimately in my life, I am living according to the Spirit. I am living with the Spirit in me. And if that's true, the requirement of the law has been met. And there is therefore now no condemnation. Okay? Next week we'll pick it up in verse 5.